You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. In 2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, it's Max. Before we get started... I just want to tell you quickly, I don't know if you know this, but uh, my co-host on this show, Aaron Lammer, has another podcast. It's called Coin Talk. It's all about uh, the world of cryptocurrency and Bitcoin, and um, it's hilarious. It's super entertaining. He does it with uh, Jay Caspian Kang of Vice and the New York Times Magazine, two-time guest on the long-form podcast. And uh, I don't know. It's entertaining as all hell. I just wanted to say that. You should go listen to Coin Talk hosted by Aaron Lammer and Jay Kang. Now here's uh, our show. Hello, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with my co-hosts, Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello. Hi. Nice to see you guys back in the studio. Evan, back in the game. I guess I am back in the studio. You've probably been here the whole time. Evan's been on a nine-month sabbatical. Um, we got a good one this week, someone we've wanted to have for a while, and I feel like we're catching him at the right time. Yeah, Jeff Mish, who's a freelance writer. He's based out of Los Angeles. Um, he writes uh, what he describes as bangers. <laughs> they, they are holy shit stories. They, uh, he's written all kinds of different ones. He wrote this one about uh, the English soccer team West Ham and the time that the manager uh, called a fan who was heckling him onto the field and asked him to play the first or second half of the game, put him in uniform. That That's my favorite Jeff May story. So the most recent one, and I think this one, uh, th- at least in my limited anecdotal experience, uh, is uh, the one that went the furthest. I got it forwarded to me by people who I uh, was unaware were uh, long-form fans, uh, is about the rigging of the McDonald's Monopoly game, which is near and dear to my heart because I was a, a, a fanatical player of the McDonald's Monopoly game as a teen. Yeah, uh, basically the guy who was entrusted to ensure the uh, sanctity of the McDonald's Monopoly game was actually stealing all of the most valuable pieces, giving them to friends and acquaintances for kickbacks. Uh, This all happened in like the late 90s. Yeah. And it was reported on and then went away and Jeff went back, found it, reported it. And uh, it's got to be one of the biggest stories, certainly in like Daily Beast history. It's like top Twitter went everywhere and then got in this crazy bidding war in Hollywood for the option rights and was optioned for $350,000 by uh, Matt Damon and Ben Affleck. Okay, so there was an article. I don't know if you talked about this in the interview. I haven't listened to the interview yet. There was an article in, uh, I think, New York uh, about... Um, this film producer who I had always been like, where is he finding all these stories? 
they feel like movies and they're like just sort of uh, conjured out of thin air. And uh, it turns out that he's been working with a film producer who turns the articles into packages that he can then sell. Did, is that talked yeah. about? Yeah, and that's how the, this McDonald's story happens. So like uh, this Hollywood producer named David Colwans tipped Jeff off to the story and uh, then he went and reported it and we talked at length about kind of how that mechanism works and what it means for the journalism and all that stuff. Excellent. Uh, we are brought to you as always by MailChimp. So you guys the thing that MailChimp's doing this summer. Read this summer. Shea Serrano and MailChimp are bringing a whole group of authors to the uh, Decatur Book Festival over Labor Day. Evan and I did it last year, and uh, Shea is doing it this year. There's all kinds of fantastic authors. If you're looking for something to read, go to readthissummer.com. And if you're in the like Atlanta metro area, Labor Day, go to the Decatur Book Festival. It's a lot of fun. Uh, thanks to MailChimp uh, for making podcasts like this and book festivals possible. Now here's Max with Jeff Mesh. I feel like I feel like we're having this conversation at the right time. I think so. You're overdue. This whole thing is overdue, but I feel like we're 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 doing it at the right time because um, I just read uh, in the news that you're you're rich now. <laughs> uh, I, I guess so. Um, <laughs> that's, it's been a difficult week. I mean, uh, yeah, um, the movie deal was very heavily publicized, as was the the sale figure yeah uh in a number of trades which was very awkward for me yeah well i'm just gonna make it more awkward the thing i bought for a million dollars the purchase what? price was one million dollars right and so the and the option fee was 350 yeah. which set a record right so i'm told that's crazy man congratulations uh thank you yeah i mean it w reading that on the internet really made me feel naked it was uh, quite embarrassing and i had some kind of awkward conversations with with family like, <laughs> yeah, I can uh, imagine. you know ben affleck isn't going to arrive at my front door with a bag full of tens um you know <laughs> i mean if you and i were closer friends i definitely would have been like you're taking me out to dinner tonight i've bought a lot of dinners in the last couple of weeks <laughs> yeah, i can imagine <laughs> yeah it's been it, it's been a difficult week because like i felt like i was quite obscure before that and suddenly being in for example the, the hollywood reporter and, and deadline and stuff like that has been a surreal experience as is being here um <laughs> on the long form podcast and little things like just the last couple of weeks has been a real blur well walk me through it like that story goes up and what happens next for you they put it up on a saturday night Great time to publish a story. It's the, the hot spot. Of, uh, <laughs> everyone knows the internet is cracking. That's when everyone is buzzing <laughs> around reading 9,000 word articles. Um, I was at a soccer game. My beloved Tottenham Hotspur were playing in Los Angeles. And the story went live and that was great. I saw it go up and off I drove to the Rose Bowl. And my phone was uh, was buzzing. It was, it was buzzing more than normal. But... Uh, you have been through this on some level before. Like, you have yeah. had big viral stories before. A couple, yeah. I mean, the the catfish story that I wrote for The Atlantic yeah, was, we're gonna talk about was that pretty one. wild. But um, a lot of people were reading this story. A lot of people were sharing this story. And I think it's because everybody identified with the McDonald's Monopoly game. We were all kind of characters 
in the story because we'd all played the game. Right, it was like everyone reading it had been conned. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and it was a revelation. So it was being widely shared on Saturday night, and by Sunday it was just, it was everywhere that I looked on my cell phone, the the top of Twitter. What was that, what was Sunday like for you? Sunday was shaping up to be a normal day. Um I was in the middle of selling some stuff on Craigslist. What were you selling? I was selling my partner's old keyboard, piano, and people had started inquiring about uh, the keyboard. And then my email just started getting overwhelmed with movie people, Hollywood uh, producers. And then progressively through Sunday, it started getting like more and more. Uh, I think at the peak, there was like four a minute coming in emails. Jesus. Which I kind of didn't know how I didn't know how to deal with it, so I was forwarding it all to Joel, who's my agent uh, in Los Angeles, Joel Gottler, who specifically does book to film rights. That's all he does. He's not a literary agent; he just does book to film. So I was just sending that stuff over to him and trying to just get on with with life. But the phone was also going as well with radio and television people. They wanted me to go on the radio and talk about it, so I started doing that. You know, appearing on radio shows. <laughs> Which is even weirder because, you know, you're patched into these local radio shows in Missouri and Michigan and Colorado. And so I'm just talking the story through, which is weird because we'd only just put it to bed. Daily Beast is online. There's no waiting for it to be printed. So I was still in a room that was surrounded by notes and I had all the, the structure and stuff up on the wall. So I was doing lots of radio and lots of TV, and then I became aware on Sunday night that people were making offers for the, the movie rights. On some level, did you expect interest? Yes. But it exceeded your expectations. I've sold a lot of options to my work before. I've, I think I've signed about 10 options for stuff I've written. So you knew something was going to happen? Yeah. Just not four emails a minute? No. Was it fun? Uh... It got fun. Um, it was. It, I would just describe it as overwhelming. So, of course, I'm, I'm forwarding all the emails, including the, the people trying to buy my keyboard to uh, <laughs> my agent. <laughs> and uh, by Monday morning, there, there were. It was an auction. What did you get for the keyboard? Five million dollars. <laughs> got hundred eight dollars for the keyboard and uh, three hundred fifty grand for the story. Something like that. Yeah. It was. Um, yeah, I've read all the names of the people that were that were interested in making the movie, and it was you know it was really exciting, and uh, I think I made the right decision. Yeah, Matt Damon, Ben Affleck, those guys know what they're doing, right? Yeah, I love their movies. <laughs> um, <laughs> there were other big names, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio would have been nice. I want to talk about the Hollywood stuff more, but I feel like it, I also want to talk about the story and how mm. you got the story and. It sounds like those things maybe are like slightly connected. Yeah, I guess they are. And everyone seems more interested in the deal side of things than the reporting side of things, which has been unusual. But yeah, I guess they are connected. All right, well, walk me through it. How'd you find the story? The story was sent to me. I was tipped off by David Clawans, who is an independent film producer. Uh, he's been mentioned on this show before because he was the producer that sent Joshua Berman the story that became... Argo, mm -hmm. the excellent wide magazine story that's like one of the best long form stories ever written. Of all time, yeah. Right. And so that's what David does. He kind of 
he's this conduit for these amazing narratives. He's got this way of finding these fantastic stories. And in 2016, David said to me, you should, you should have a look at this. I think this would make a, a killer magazine piece, but the reporting's going to be really hard, I, I realised, because the access wasn't there. I couldn't get the protagonist, Jerome Jacobson. Before we get any further down the line, can you just quickly give me like the uh, short version of the story? So the, the McDonald's Monopoly story is about a former cop called Jerome Jacobson who was given the very important position of guarding all of the winning tokens for the McDonald's Monopoly promotion and seeding them across the United States for lucky customers to win anything from a Dodge Viper to a million dollars in cash. But he was tempted and he became a, a criminal and he started giving those winning tickets to a, a cadre of other criminals and psychics and third-tier mobsters and even a family of Mormons. It was a huge criminal conspiracy of over 50 people. I mean, it's the definition of a holy shit story. I think so. But I only write holy shit stories. So. <laughs> That's your whole game, man. <laughs> I'm lucky like that. You know, I don't write stories that aren't bangers. You know, I'm looking for stories that are going to make you guys say, holy shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's, that remains my number one uh, metric by which I judge this stuff. It's just if I want to email it to Aaron with the subject line, holy shit. <laughs> okay. So, so our guy, Jerome, is susceptible to holding millions of dollars worth of tickets. And then the, the like last act of the story is an FBI sting operation. Yeah, the FBI tipped off into the the operation that it's been going on for 12 years and they set up a uh, a muck sting <laughs> they tap everybody's phones they dress as mcdonald's employees and they arrive at one of the lucky winners addresses to surprise them with a a big check and shower them in confetti but it was all it was all a ruse to get them on tape lying about how they won the, the prize to convince a, a jury that they were guilty Hey, I'm going to put things on hold for just a second and tell you a little bit about Google Play, which is making today's show possible. Did you know that you can download and listen to audiobooks on Google Play? You can. With hands-free listening using Google Assistant or Chromecast, you can enjoy thousands of titles a la carte. No subscription necessary. That is important. If you just want to hear one audiobook, go to Google Play. You only have to buy one. You don't have to sign up for like months and months and months of unlimited audiobooks. Just get the one at Google Play. There's even multi-device integration across the Google ecosystem. I have uh, done this myself. I have used Google Play to download an audiobook. I actually have started, maybe this is like admitting something I should never admit, but um, I occasionally will listen to the audiobook instead of reading the book before one of these interviews. I've got one coming up. Uh, it'll be out in September. And I listened to the audiobook, and uh, it was a fantastic experience, thanks to uh, Google Play. So you should try it out to, I think, if you are listening to this podcast, you will like it. It's uh, right in your wheelhouse, as they say. For a limited time, you can get 10 bucks off your first one by going to g.co slash play slash longform. That's g.co slash play slash longform. Find your story with audiobooks on Google Play. Okay, 
It's an incredible story. It's an insane story. Cluance calls you and says, like, you should look into this. It could be a real reporting challenge. But, man, if we could get there, there's something special. I'm interested in how you start approaching that reporting. But also, like, why do you need the article? Why does he need the article? I mean, that's probably a question for David. I believe Hollywood is more interested in IP. They, they like to have things that are based on something. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that a lot of movies are based on comic books, and there's a, a bit of a trend for true stories. But, yeah, I guess there's a value there in someone perhaps doing all the hard work and doing all the research. And, you know, it takes so long to research these stories. Yeah, we're it? talking about 2016. It's like a, sure. almost two years, right? Yeah. All right, so he feels like he needs something tangible that can be optioned. He's not going to go spend two years reporting the story himself. And so what do you do? How do you go report a story like that? Like I report every other story. (laughs) It's just you start with the paperwork, you know, um, document review. It was a big struggle to get the court docs. They were all locked away, and because the case was so old they weren't readily available so I had to order them they had to fly them in from NARA uh, the National Archives and Records place up in uh, Georgia and then they went to Jacksonville so I had to fly from Los Angeles to Jacksonville to rescue these documents who's funding all that? me you're just doing it on spec? yeah how do you do that? how do you afford to do that? it's not a matter of affording it it's I've had problems in the past where I've pitched stories and uh, magazines have thought they were so good that they would prefer their staffer to do them. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I get all my ducks in a row first. Um, yeah. I was hurt by a magazine even this year. Um, I pitched a very obscure story and started reporting it and then they suddenly realized that uh, their staff reporter had actually been on the same story at the same time. Uh, you want to tell me about magazine? No. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds dodgy as shit. It is. Um, but you know what? That's life. Um, but yeah, that I don't... Um, it's not a financial thing. Flights are quite cheap to Jacksonville. I've got airline points. And I also need to know if I've got the story first. I, mm-hmm. I, I kind of feel nervous about pitching a magazine story. And also, I don't know many magazines that would fly me that far. In this climate, in this magazine climate, I don't know whether there'd be magazines that would make that investment. How often do you go down the line on something that doesn't pan out? Quite often, yeah. And that's just like part of the model. I think what I'm driving at, you know what, I'm going to be uh, more direct because I feel like I'm being circuitous for no reason. I emailed you and was like, you got to come on the show, talk about the story, it's insane. Yeah. And uh, you were like, cool, it's got to be on a weekend because I have a full-time job. Uh-huh. And I was so surprised to hear that. I feel like I've been dishonest about it before. I've been asked this before and I've, I've not been honest. Like, I do a lot of talking at universities and stuff, and they, they say, how do you make it work? And I'm like, well, yeah, I've got a day job. I've had a day job for five years. What do you do? Uh, I'm a technical copywriter. And how are you writing these bangers on, like, nights and weekends? Uh, here's how that started. I I came here as a news journalist. I was writing major breaking news uh, from the West Coast for British and Australian newspapers. And I did that for three years, and it was really tiring. Yeah. And it was emotionally taxing. I was at Sandy Hook on the scene. I was at Colorado for the James Holmes massacre, uh, Aurora, Colorado. Not easy reporting. And I got kind of burned out, and I had this chance meeting, and this may sound like a massive name drop, 
But I had a chance meeting with James Elroy in Los Angeles. I recognised him. And he said, no one ever recognises him. And he took me for a burger in Los Angeles. Hmm. And I told him my situation. I said, I really want to write amazing crime stories and at length and I want to write for like Playboy you know that's why I came here and he told me this story about being a golf caddy while he was writing his early noir he was 30 years old and I was I guess about 30 then and he convinced me to jack it in and I wanted to find a day job so that's what I did I wanted to focus on on writing great american long form which was the dream which is why i came here that's why i came to america yeah you were working at like a lad mag in the uk right <laughs> i was the staff writer at loaded magazine uh i don't know if you guys know much about that i don't i don't know a ton about i i never subscribed to loaded yeah it's kind of like a mix between playboy and and maxim here mm-hmm. and i worked there throughout my my whole 20s and did you want to be doing this kind of stuff then? I was doing that kind of stuff, but in a shorter form. I was doing my longest story was like eighteen hundred words, mm-hmm. but I was coming to America. I was doing these amazing stories. You know, I I came here and I did. I was a rodeo clown. I pitched this to my editor and I said, I really want to be a rodeo clown. <laughs> There's something about the rodeo. I feel like half the people who've been on this show did like a rodeo story at some point. It's so intriguing as a writer. Jean Marie Laskus. Incredible writer. She has like an uh, Esquire rodeo story from, I don't know, early 2000s maybe. The rodeo, it's like a rite of passage. I wanted to do a gonzo piece and Loaded was very gonzo. You had to do everything. So my pitch was I would train and become a rodeo clown, <laughs> which I did in Fort Worth. They gave me very brief training. They basically said, whatever you do, don't run in a straight line, zigzag, and the bull won't ever get you. And they said it's fine because they shave the top of the bull's horn off so you can put a quarter on so it won't actually pierce your your skin. So the first bull that came into the ring, I literally just beelined out (laughs) (laughs) in a a straight line and it hooked me good and proper. I think I flew about 15 feet, (laughs) which was made for a great picture, but I was actually quite seriously injured. (laughs) Made for a great story. (laughs) It was great. But um, that was the kind of stuff I was doing for Loaded. And I was mm. coming over to America back and forth doing like Rocket Man, who was a guy in Minneapolis who built uh, rocket powered toilets in his backyard. I was basically doing the, the men's mag beat for, for Loaded. But a lot of the stories were in America because America just has, has these bizarre subcultures. And America's just always absolutely fascinated me. Mm. I'm in love with America. <laughs> So you came, you told your editors it loaded, like, I got to follow my American dream with all these insane people that I've been writing about. Came here, you were stringing, meet James Elroy. James Elroy buys you a burger, tells you to follow your dreams. And you're like, all right, I'm going to go get a day job and keep doing the stuff on the side. Mm-hmm. Or or was the writing, was the crime writing, like, still always your focus? And the other things are nine to five. It was always my focus. I wrote one long-form story, uh, my first one in 2013, about a, uh, a soccer hooligan. Yeah, for Howler, right? For Howler. Uh, it's a great story. Uh, thanks. It's my favorite. <laughs> and um, it gave me the, the bug. And having people read it, it was the first time anything had ever been shared on social media. It was the first thing I'd ever had with a byline that went crazy. And I was really, I was in love with it. I wanted to do more. And I started reading loads of David Gran and loads of Eric Larson and becoming a, a huge listener of this podcast, like learning as much as I could. And I started pitching. I started pitching magazines and 
and cool website. And how did it start working for you? Like, it just a lot of people come on this show and talk about how they make it work, but it's definitely like the number one thing that people ask. It's like what people want to hear. Mm-hmm. It's like financially, how do you pull this off? Well, the day job. I know, but I'm, <laughs> I'm but I'm trying to figure out. Well, there's two things. I mean, one is like the decision to get a day job and to take that plunge. But then the second thing is just how you manage those two parts of your life. It's hard. Yeah. I mean, how do you, how do you, how do you do that? I work incredibly hard. I get up four or five o'clock in the morning. I'm on the East, on the West coast, which is great because the rest of the world is already ahead. So I I do a lot of calls then. Mm -hmm. If I have to, I do lunch calls during the day and my travel I do when I can on the weekends. And, uh, you make it work. I speak to friends who have got staff jobs at magazines and they say, I wish I had time to do long form, you know, but you can if you really want to do it. And But I don't know, listening to you talk my trajectory through made it sound easy. Like it was a lot harder than that. When I first came to America, when I landed here, I was number three on Loaded, which was like the biggest, one of the biggest men's magazines in England. And I stupidly thought that I was just going to immediately start working for Playboy and GQ and Maxim. I really believed that. I got here and I, I sent these introductory emails. Like, I've arrived. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff is here now. No pitch. <laughs> <laughs> no pitch. Um, just, you know, ready for assignment. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I didn't get anywhere. And I had to start, not at the bottom, because that's unfair on those titles, but I had to start with magazines like Howler, that would give an untested writer a chance and places like narratively that are a great platform for someone that wants to write at length but doesn't have the cuttings behind them to go to you know GQ or somewhere like that when did you feel like you were uh getting on the map when did you feel like you you had your feet under you a little bit last week <laughs> really i don't know it, it's so hard like getting a commission is so hard writing long form stuff is so hard and it's been i've learned while i've done it so many people on the show that they come on here and they say well i started as a fact checker at the new yorker which is great like anyone who has that start is going to be a great long form journalist but i never had that background so it was reading and trying to learn as much as i could from editors on you know as i went along was there a story that allowed you to jump from the places where the you know the fees are really low if they exist at all to no the fees are still really low <laughs> <laughs> that that part didn't change no and i don't think it will and i feel like i've come under some unfair criticism this week about the hollywood stuff and about getting inspiration from film producers and stuff like that but in a world where the journalism economy seems to be broken and freelancers are moaning that they can't get paid and that you know is it going to be micropayments or is it going to be, um, you know, some kind of medium.com solution or Patreon, whatever it's called? You know, here I am trying to do things a bit differently and look for a way in, a way to make this work, a way to write long form. And uh, I feel like I, I was criticized a little bit for that. What's your version of the criticism? How would you how would you describe it? That I'm some kind of sock puppet for a, a nefarious Hollywood producer who is goosing magazines and newspapers to get his project set up. I don't even know what goosing means. Um, <laughs> People should know there were very significant air quotes around goosing. <laughs> Planting stories, which just seems bizarre, um, because 
I haven't reported this story, this McDonald's story, any differently to how I've reported any other story. David Kluans or anyone is not involved in the reporting or the editing or the writing of this story. What's your deal with him? Is it 50-50? No. He's got his own deal. He's got his own deal? Yeah. With who? Well, I guess with whoever purchases the movie rights. He's a producer. That's what he does. I'm I'm not... I'm really not trying to tag him. I'm trying to understand how sure. it works. And if you want to say I don't want to talk about it, it's fine. <laughs> I'll talk about anything. But like this article comes up, what what does he own of the? He, does he have like life rights deals? How does it work? Not in this instance. Uh, I, I guess he just does what he does and sends the article to studios and says this would make a fantastic movie. And I guess they agree. But why would they do it with him? Right versus who? Who else? I mean, you're in this crazy bidding war. You're getting four emails. <laughs> a minute for the article where is his place in it well I, I think he sends the article around maybe a day before it comes out mm-hmm. which is not unusual by the way I, I didn't invent this <laughs> this has been going on for decades and other journalists do this on a much grander scale than I do the, the likes of Joshua Davis and Joshua Berman and David Kushner has had dozens of things uh, optioned there's entire companies set up to produce quality journalism to inspire the movies like Epic Magazine and Things like that. So, yeah. I'm genuinely not trying to say that you've invented some new <laughs> way of doing things. I'm trying to understand how it works. Yeah. So, a producer writes you, tips you off to a story. You go spend two years reporting it. You get it published in the Daily Beast. You retain the IP and derivative rights. I think they call the, them ancillary rights. Ancillary just, rights. Yeah, this, this exposes how little I understand this. I don't even know the language. So you retain the ancillary rights, and then this bidding war starts. How does Cluons stay attached to that project? I guess by sending it round, he has some kind of ownership on it. And plus, I wouldn't work with anyone that's not him because he did me the great service of tipping me off to the story. Right. So they come to you and you're like, I'm with this guy. Sure. But he has his own deal. Like that option price and purchase price, that's yours. Yes. Sweet. It's a good deal, man. It's Look, they're not all like that, Max. <laughs> uh, well, they can't be because that was the biggest one ever. Yeah. That's great. Do you think? Well, I'm, you seem um, <laughs> like, uh, what's the word? uncomfortable about it. I am. Why? I'm I'm a little embarrassed. You're embarrassed about how much it was? Yeah. Not about how you got there? No. I'm embarrassed because I'm quite a private person. I don't even have a Facebook. My right. Instagram's private. To suddenly mm-hmm. have that kind of number next to your name is surprising and embarrassing and it made me feel a little uncomfortable. But I've had to own it, you know, and I've had to do some deep thinking about that kind of stuff. There's two questions I have. So the, the main piece of criticism as I understand it, was in a Vulture article by Chris Lee. I didn't feel like the article was that critical. It was the Twitter, someone tweeted it, and there were people talking about it on Twitter that was the negative stuff. Okay, I actually didn't follow the Twitter stuff super closely. (laughs) The Twitter stuff was basically saying, like, you were like a patsy for a Hollywood producer. Sock puppet is the term you use. Sure. There's this funny thing that happened with the Chris Lee story, so I read it when it came out. Did you read it three days later? I did. (laughs) I did read it later. I read it right before you and I talked today. And there's a disclosure. At the top? And in the story that Chris Lee has also worked with David Kluens. Uh, Yeah, he, they, (laughs) 
there was an announcement on Deadline this week that he'd set up uh, one of his magazine articles as a movie. I want to just take a step back because I feel like people listening might not be able to follow exactly what the chain of events is here. So the McDonald's story comes out, breaks the internet. You start getting four emails a minute. Steven Spielberg, like every big name in Hollywood is bidding on this thing. And you end up going with Matt Damon and Ben Affleck for the amount of money that makes you uncomfortable to talk about, understandably. Uh, And then this article comes out in Vulture sort of being like, and this is how this works. And it was like a breakdown of it. And the guy who wrote the article is doing the same thing with the same guy. Yes. That's some real, like, snake-eating-its-tail shit, Inception. right? Yeah. That's what was... I couldn't believe it when I saw that disclosure. It's like... Well, I did it, tell you that, that a lot of this is, is happening. But, by the way, the, the criticism that there's something nefarious about this, that there's somehow the legitimacy of the reporting is in question, is ridiculous. Well, here's the question about that, mm. as, as I understand it is about life rights and the degree to which anyone that you're reporting on in the story is also invested in the project's future as film or TV. Hmm. So in the McDonald's story, is there anyone that you talk to who's going to get paid now because it's going to become a movie? That I don't know. That I leave up to the the film people. You guys really don't like talk about it? Uh, no, I'm a journalist. <laughs> people Google me and they see that there's film stuff and you know sometimes I do get asked that, but... I tend to stay out of that side of things, you know, and I can see how you can see that that looks like muddy waters. I don't believe you can pay a convicted criminal for, they can't profit from their their crimes. Yeah, yeah, I'm not sure about that one. I don't believe they're, from my conversations with Fox, I don't believe they have got any life rights. I know Jerome Jacobson is not interested and the FBI agent is not interested. So really... Your feeling about it is you get tipped off to a good story, a story that if it comes to fruition could be valuable. The article is important because Hollywood needs something to option. They need some piece of IP. It can't just be like walking into a meeting and be like a crazy thing happened 20 years ago. And then you kind of go off and do this, landing it at the Daily Beast, that's all you. Yeah. No one else is involved in that process. Not at all. Oh, and the Daily Beast know what's going on. They're up on it. Of course, yeah. And then it's kind of like playing the lottery a little bit. Maybe lottery is not the exact right. It's like playing poker, I guess. Like, you know the odds are going to increase. You're picking stories that you think will have a good chance of going down that route. Mm. Some of them I think that's where I disagree. Okay, please do. Help me understand The criticism could be that I only choose stories that sound like schlocky movies. (laughs) The truth is there are much more complicated themes in my stories that I look for that are nothing to do with... I think the McDonald's movie is going to be good. I'll see it. (laughs) I'm not saying that's going to be schlocky at all. All right, so help me understand that. What's the elevated piece of it? I've always looked for stories with the theme of identity and identity theft i'm very interested in people leading double lives all of my stories are the same in a sense they're all the same story whether that's a spy or a fake cheerleader or a bank robber or even a wrestler someone is pretending to be someone they're not Hmm. and leading a double life and i find that really exciting i'm drawn to characters who put on a disguise why do you think that is I've kind of traced it back really far to when I was a kid. And um, 
this is the product of a lot of expensive therapy. <laughs> but when I was a teenager, a very close member of my family was an undercover police detective, hmm. one of the best in London's Metropolitan Police. And when I was 14, that member of my family was arrested and was convicted of fraud. And it was a very big case. And for a 14-year-old, it really deeply affected me. Did you know before that that was his or her job? Yes. You knew they were an undercover cop? Yeah, it was the coolest thing ever. <laughs> when did you find out? Like, when do you tell a young Jeff, this is what I do for a living, or this is like what Uncle Jim does for a living? Just as you get older, yeah, you, become, you get told more and more. You know what families are like. <laughs> you know, you get told more and more what they do. And uh, it was the first time I was aware of the press. Because when it all went down, it was a, a television story. You know, reporters at the door, ringing the phone. And that was the first I ever saw of the press. What was the fraud? I can't really say uh, without going. It's another podcast. Okay. But it was, uh, it was a major case. And there was a lot of corruption in the police in the 1990s, particularly in the Metropolitan Police. And um, I remember just being obsessed with it. Really obsessed. And... Going into school that week was kind of weird because I grew up in South London and the playground was a little bit divided who was, whose dad was a cop and whose dad was a bad guy. <laughs> so I kind of didn't know where, where I stood. But following that case and going to prisons as a teenager to visit this relative was really fascinating. I remember going to Maidstone prison hmp maidstone in kent and seeing mail for one of the cray twins hmm. one of the big uh, gangsters all the mail was piled up fan letters when i was about 14 or 15 and i remember the first time i went into the prison i wore my my brand new shirt and it was white with blue stripes and i'd never been to a prison before it was the exact same uniform as the prisoners <laughs> <laughs> And my mum was really furious. She was like, you're, you're not going to get out of here if you were. <laughs> <laughs> but that, that had a big impact on me. And I didn't realise till much later on that I was writing the same story over and over again. How did you figure that out? Therapy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even joking. It's, so, it's such an LA answer. <laughs> but, you know, I, I want to be honest. And, yeah, I've had to go diving really deep into, into why I tell these stories and what I'm looking for. All right, man. So what are you looking for? I want to find out why. Why people do that? Yeah, I've, I've profiled more bank robbers than any other journalist. Seriously, I've sat opposite more bank robbers in more countries than any other journalist. And it's not the fact they've robbed a bank. It's why they did it. And all of the bank robbers that I've interviewed have been completely different. One was a 70-year-old guy. One was a 22-year-old nurse, female. Do they all do it for the same reason? Different reasons. Mostly addiction. I think it was Skip Hollinsworth that said that bank robbery is the ultimate performance art. Well, I was going to say, he's got to be the only person who rivals you for sure. talking to bank robbers. I think I've done it in more countries. Because <laughs> I've done Greece and England and America. Right, he just sticks to the, like, the American South. Texas. Yeah. I love Skip. Uh, the ultimate performance art. You're on camera. It's like America's got talent. <laughs> but you think they all do it for different reasons? I think they get a thrill. I think there's definitely a thrill to it. The last bank robber that I interviewed, Randy Adair, 
was 70 when he pulled off six bank robberies in Southern California. The big thing about his story was that when he was arrested, finally, they figured out that he was a former LAPD police detective. Not just any detective, but this heroic detective that was even at the arrest of Saran Saran for the murder of Bobby Kennedy. And he lived this amazing life. And he was using, I think, his cop knowledge. He'd investigated bank robberies for 30 years to pull off these bank robberies and doing them in such a way that he wouldn't get caught. Small banks, close to freeways, keeping it small, didn't even really have to wear a disguise. That's fascinating to me. (laughs) And in every one of the stories, there's this same moment. There's What I really love is the mirror moment, which is where they put the disguise on for the first time. That's what gets me going. Why? I don't know. <laughs> it's just great. They become someone else. This spy, in my, my second book, The Spy With No Name, this Czech spy, they give him a tuxedo. He's a boy from a small village, and they give him a tuxedo and all the training he needs to become a spy, and they give him an apartment and gold cufflinks and a bottle of really expensive aftershave. And there's a bit where he's alone in his apartment for the first time and he looks in the mirror and he doesn't see himself anymore he sees James Bond or the Czech version of James Bond <laughs> are you still in uh, in touch with that relative? yeah how do you feel about them now? we're very close good guy yeah there are bad people in the world and there are good people that make bad decisions And I see that in a lot of the criminals that I choose to profile. Sandeep Kaur, the bombshell bandit, the Indian nurse that I profiled. Holy shit story. Yeah. When I met her, she was tiny. I went into this prison in Utah and she sat down opposite me and she was just a slip of a girl. And she got involved in, somehow got involved in blackjack and loan sharks and the world of Las Vegas and felt that she had no other option than to hold up banks. I mean, wow. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Good person who did bad things. Yeah, but there's also bad people that do terrible things. Jerome Jacobson, he was an ex-cop too. He was a police officer for the Hollywood Police Department in Florida. He'd always wanted to be a cop. He'd grown up wanting to be a detective. Tried to get into the Marines. And suddenly he's stealing $24 million from McDonald's. What makes you flip? What's your answer with him? Greed. It's the theme of the story. And I think, if anything, that I get from living in LA and supposedly being so in bed with Hollywood producers... (laughs) is that I'm such a student of film narrative structure, and I always have been, and I structure my stories cinematically. And with the McDonald's story, I did something cinematically in that I stated the theme really early, which was greed. And I love doing that because I think it sets the tone for the rest of the story, and I don't think a lot of long-form writers do that. Maybe it's too obvious. But the other thing I did was uh, I mentioned a 
disgraced clown in the story, which a lot of people picked up on on Twitter. I interviewed a disgraced Ronald McDonald who'd been accused of making threatening calls while he was paid by McDonald's to portray the clown. He says one word in the whole story, uh, McQueen. He describes Amy Murray of McDonald's as the McQueen. And it took me months to get him, absolutely months, to find him. I found his YouTube account and I I had to look in the background of one of his uh, videos and saw the number on his front door and cross-referenced that with some publicly available material. And I wrote him a handwritten note and after a couple of weeks he got back to me and I did the interview. And he had absolutely nothing to do with the McDonald story really other than that character sketch of Amy Murray. But what I wanted to do at that point of the story is to say, not everything is what you think it's going to be (laughs) in this story. And there's a dark side to McDonald's. And that's why I I pushed so hard to get that guy in the story. Have you ever thought about writing fiction? No. How come? It's really hard. I don't have that much of an imagination. (laughs) What you just described was really hard. Uh, I get asked all the time when I'm going to start writing screenplays and the answer is never because I don't enjoy them and I don't know how they work I also find dialogue really difficult to make up (laughs) especially American dialogue everyone either sounds like a cowboy or (laughs) but for me I get a real thrill out of digging really deep into the court documents all of Jerome Jacobson came from the court documents pulling his speech his uh, deposition and his when he was speaking on the stand that's where his words came from. So everything in the story either comes from a court document or from a publicly available record. And it's easy to drag and drop that, and it sounds authentic. You can't make up the way that ex-cops talk. You know, like when I watch True Detective and things like that, I, I look at that and see that's not how cops talk. That's how actors talk. Mm-hmm. You know, real cops and real robbers, they talk in a specific way, and I try and get that as authentic as I can. And I'm just not interested in fiction. Because often the truth is, as they say, wilder than than fiction. And especially you're looking for uh you're looking for like the wildest stories you can find. Yeah, I'm I'm blessed because I don't have to do the, the non wild stories. Like I don't have to do you know, I don't have to do a four hundred word story on something I'm not interested in and then chase down a, a newspaper for seventy five dollars. Do the people you work with know what you do? Yes. Are they into it? I th- they just don't really know much about it. I mean, it's they think it's cool that I'm verified on Twitter for some reason. <laughs> it's like, but they don't, you know. It's um, yeah. We it's it's such a different world. It's tech. I mean, I don't write stories that would be a conflict of interest. You know, I don't write the hacker stories for Wired. I've got no interest in writing um, stories about startups or things like that. You know, I, I work at a big tech company. It's pretty big, yeah. It's one of the biggest. Not that you can tell me. No, yeah. it's uh, it's got. I'm one of eighty thousand staff. <laughs> Help me understand for a second how you balance those two parts of your life. So you told me that one way, in you know, like a practical sense, is you wake up at four in the morning and call. Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes it's as late as seven. <laughs> you work your ass off, though. I show. work hard, but you know what? I've been so nervous about telling people that I've got a job because I feel like editors would think I was an amateur. I've felt that for a long time. Hmm. I've felt that 
oh, he's not full time, so you know, he's too busy writing press releases. He's not going to get this done properly. But I feel like I got to the stage where I just want to let the work speak for itself. I over-report everything. I, I try really hard to get things right, and um, I kind of don't care now. Well, good for you, man. I'm glad. I'm glad you feel whole about it. But I got to tell you, it makes me think a little bit about this thing that you're interested in, which is like uh, one person leading two lives. Mm-hmm. Like those are really different experiences. There cannot be of those eighty thousand people, too many people who are waking up at four in the morning to do another job at the level you are doing it. It's LA. Everyone's got a side hustle. Yeah, man, this is not a side hustle. Everyone's though. got a handbag line or a t-shirt range. <laughs> I don't know anyone that's not doing something else. And it's when I first got the job, it was encouraged. You know, when I was interviewed, I said, "I've, you know, I write for the Atlantic and." You know, they wanted someone that could write long form content. I said, "Well, I, I can do that." <laughs> Does your work feel like a side hustle? No, it's a full time job, and I'm really passionate about it. I love it. I wouldn't be there otherwise. No, no, no. I meant your journalism. I, I don't know what I don't know what you mean. Which one do you think is the side hustle? That's what I'm asking. I don't think there is one. They're both very important to me. Yeah, that's what I'm trying to ask you about. That seems hard. <laughs> having having two full time jobs seems hard. It is. It probably can't go on forever. Yeah. My partner asked me if there was a point where I would not have to do it. and <laughs> Stop waking up at fucking four in the morning. <laughs> if there was like a financial point or if there was an emotional point or a success point, and I don't think there is one. Evidently not this week. <laughs> right, you still got that job, right? Sure. I went into work that day. <laughs> Got yourself like a extra fancy coffee on the way in or something? Uh, I don't think I did. I'm very. I live very modestly. I've got to tell you. I'm like, <laughs> I live, my apartment where I wrote the McDonald's stories, less than a thousand square feet, and every wall was covered in material. I had structure notes and depositions nailed up everywhere for maybe two, three months. So, how much longer do you think you can keep it up? I don't know. I'm going to keep going until I don't have to. I mean, maybe I'll get a book deal. Who knows? Maybe I like the idea of sitting at home and, and writing a book, but I think I'd go mad. What do you want to do? I'd really like to write for The New Yorker, and I'd really like to write for The New York Times magazine. Do you feel close to that? No. Really? No, I still don't. Why? I feel like I've got a lot to learn. What's the gap that you think you need to close? I still feel like uh, I don't have the next level of the literature side of things. Like, I think the reporting's there, but I'm still studying hard on the flourishes that make fantastic long form that gives you chills. Like, when I read Michael Pataniti, he's on another level, you know. The plane crash story is just phenomenal. And when I read David Gran, these are people that I look up to. And it, I'm going to get there, but I'm not quite there yet. Is it just um, sort of like practice that gets you there? Is it like finding the right editor? How do you do that? I think it's finding the right stories that will allow me to do that. Um, and I think I'm certainly looking for something different now something that is going to allow me to write more at length like i'll tell you what i did that was really 
a changing point for me was I, I wrote and self-published a story for Medium called The Murder House. And it was uh, a story about a haunted house in Los yeah. Angeles. And I was obsessed with it. It was a local story and I'd pitched it everywhere. I'd pitched it to all of the Los Angeles magazines. And everyone turned me down. They said it was like an old story. You know, there's nothing there. And I was obsessed. And I was already knee deep in the reporting. And I carried on writing it. And um, I ended up having nowhere to publish it. So I published it myself. And I commissioned an illustrator who was fantastic. And I commissioned a, a letterer whose work I really admired. And she illustrated and animated the pull quotes so that they moved hmm. very slightly like a, like a ghostly move and no one had ever done that before and they haven't done it since and I was so proud of this thing and I wrote it on my own and I self-published it and I just thought it's such a great story it's going to go up do you have anyone edit it I asked a friend to edit it yeah a friend at the times but it was the first thing that I'd written that was I felt like I'd uh, let loose a little bit hmm. you know but I was I was super proud of it, and then of course it went on your list of like most read. I think it was, yeah, which was super cool. <laughs> um, and then of course the other magazines and newspapers that turned it down were then reporting on it, which was just you know, right. that's, what, what you, <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, that's a lovely fuck you. <laughs> what can you do? Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it was great, and I I, I really love that story, especially because people didn't know that it was self published. People thought that Medium had commissioned it because the art was so good. Hmm. That's kind of like a showman move. Do you think? Yeah. I, I think so. I'm really proud of it. And um, I feel like other journalists, everyone's looking for a way to actually get paid nowadays. And there's so many different ways to kind of do stuff now. There's these platforms that will pay you to get started to publish your first kind of long form stuff. And you can even self-publish. And Medium now, I think I get a check now for that story right for all the claps it gets the claps yeah, yeah i get my, my check clap for the check. claps <laughs> clap check is something different in england <laughs> i i want to just go back to what you're saying for a second about how you feel like you're not quite there and it feels to me listening to you tell this story of the last several years of your life like it's been like a pretty um like a solo adventure does that sound right yeah I definitely feel like an outsider in, in the long-form community. Why? I don't know. Okay. So, I guess part of what I'm wondering is, like, do you think that you can get to that place that you want to get to doing it alone? No. So, what do you need to do? Find a great editor. Yeah, that's what I was driving at. I've never had this. I don't think I've had the same editor twice, apart from Justin at the Daily Beast and uh, Jenny, who was my editor at the Atlantic and then at uh, the Smithsonian. Mm -hmm. She edited my Aretha Franklin story. Good story. Thank you. How do you find that person? I don't know. This is the thing that surprised me about coming to America. I really thought that you'd write one gangbuster piece and then suddenly your phone would ring and it would be the editor from Harper's. Hey, I saw what you did. That was a great thing. You got anything else? What's next? Doesn't happen. That hasn't happened. Never. It didn't even happen with the McDonald's thing? So you were getting four emails a minute from Hollywood, but zero emails from zero. the New Yorker or the New York Times magazine? No, I don't think they do that. What do you mean? Well, it doesn't happen to me is what I'm saying. You know, and 
I thought there'd be I thought the trajectory would be simpler like I had it planned out you know I'd write for this magazine and well that would obviously lead, lead to Playboy and well I've done Playboy now which you know that obviously I'll, I'll probably end up getting a staff position next you know but it, it just doesn't happen like that and I think a lot of freelancers feel like this that I'm just a guy in an apartment trying to get noticed but you did like you can't get more notice than you just got it's peak noticing yeah except it wasn't from the right people i I guess it was yeah i I did send a pitch out that monday and it did immediately get accepted by an editor who said that he just didn't want to miss out on the next thing from a place you've written yeah for already or but it wasn't even a pitch it was a micro pitch but they said yes anyway why didn't you pitch the new yorker or the new york times magazine I pitched both of those places, the McDonald's story. Huh. Um, I pitched a lot of places, the McDonald's story. What was the reason, if there was a like consistent reason that people turned that one down? I'm sure those editors wouldn't want me talking about it on a podcast, but I believe from overall, the feedback that yeah, I got from the pitch was that the story was too old and that no one would be interested in a story that was not newsworthy. <laughs> Can't you just, like, reply to that email thread with your next pitch? Uh, <laughs> I, that seems a bit audacious and not, and not very me. Well, I, mean, I think, like, you know, publishing your own story on Medium and commissioning illustration and, like, text treatments, that's audacious, I, too. I don't want to be sounding braggy. Like, I wrote... I, I, I'm not saying you should actually do that, but I mean, like... Should I just send, like, a just a, a blank email with just a link to deadline? <laughs> yeah, I mean... <laughs> I guess, I like, it, this is interesting to me. Like, you've got this track record now. There's three years of bangers. Sure. Holy shit stories. At what point does, like, it seems to me like it is, it's important to you to get your byline in America's most prestigious publications. Sure. At what point does, like, writing stories, finding stories, being tipped off to stories and go reporting the hell out of them and then writing them. At, w- at what point does that turn those places? I don't I don't know the answer. I don't think The New Yorker gives a shit about my movie deal. Well, Honestly. I don't know if they give a shit about your movie deal, but they got to give a shit about well, that's what any 9,000-word story that that many people read. Yeah. What, what was the... That's my big fear, is that coming on here and talking endlessly about... Hollywood and Matt Damon and Martin Scorsese is is going to somehow diminish how hard I worked on that story. It was my biggest fear in agreeing to come on here and not being able to talk about what I love talking about, which is the, the writing and reporting. I feel like uh, we're we're um, this is not like a normal version of what we would we would do, right? If you had come in like two weeks ago, we just would have been ticking through all the stories and I'd been asking you about all of them. But you're so like in the maw and all this like the way the deals work and the structures happen is top of mind. But I I want to make sure that we do spend like a little bit of time on some of these stories. And one of them that I feel like some need to ask about is the Scarface of Sex story. Give me like the origins of that one and how how that one came to be. Was that one where like, uh, did someone tip you off to that one? Just me. Uh, How'd was, you find it? Someone put a catalogue through my front door for a, a Tashin coffee table book about pornography for some reason and there was a photograph taken in the ballroom of Michael Thevis, the Scarface of sex 
And I read everything. I'm an obsessive reader. I read cornflakes packets. So I read this catalogue and saw that and was immediately interested in who Michael Thevis was because I'd never heard the name. And a very quick Google search told me that Michael Thevis in the 1970s was the guy that invented a peep show machine. Before the internet and all that stuff, you'd put a nickel into a machine in a porno shop and it would show you three minutes of rude videos. He industrialized it to the point where he was a multi-multi-millionaire making, I think, 70 million a year in 70s money. Mm. And he was also a, a murderer. He'd murdered a number of his uh, acquaintances. One of them, I read, he had turned his remains into a paperweight, which immediately made all my storytelling synapses fire. Yeah. Because I was like, who is this guy? Why have I never <laughs> read his story? <laughs> you know what? That's a thing, though. That's part of what you, I think, have figured out that maybe other people haven't. And it's interesting that people from those big magazines rejected the McDonald's story because it was too old. Because one of the things that we've found with Longform, with the website, is that we can post an article that's 15 years old and it does just as well as something that came out yesterday. And for readers... Like a good story is a good story. And these things are pretty evergreen. And I mean, the McDonald's story had this incredible quirk of really being broken right before September 11th. Mm. So it got, it got lost. But I do think that's part of what it seems like you figured out is like people just want to read a good story. And just because it happened 15 years ago doesn't really matter. No one knows the details. Um, Did you know about Michael Thevis? No. Yeah. I mean, that's that's great because I, I'm writing for hopefully people that have never heard the story before. But it's with the Michael Thevis story, a lot of the journalists, when it came out, a lot of my uh, kind of friends and, and writers said, oh, I, I knew about this, but it was just too hard to report. But I went there. I went to Atlanta. I flew there. I booked a flight. And I went there. And I knocked on the door of the family. And I think I got that from my days doing the the news reporting where you were doorstepping people every day mm. you don't have that fear and that was what broke me into the story was winning over michael thevis's son tony who opened up the, the family archives his father's notes and diaries and no one had ever got on the plane before and that's what gives me a thrill and also i love going to an editor and saying this is what i've got and there's no one else on it and I do like a bullet point list of the best bits of the story. And I think that's irresistible. Or at least I hope that's irresistible. Yeah. And even if it's not, maybe like it will become more irresistible. Hopefully. Can I ask you a couple more questions about these stories? Go for it. I've been reading your stuff. I've read all these articles. And I'm like excited when one comes through. And you email us sometimes when we have one or sometimes we just find one. But I'm always excited when there's like a mage story. Because I know that you're trying to write bangers. And they're fun. They're always fun to read. And they're crazy. And I send them to Aaron and say, holy shit. They're always crazy. And I guess I wonder a little bit whether, like, whether that, that wildness can, like, wear off on you, you know? Do I become immune to the wildness? Yeah, 
yeah, maybe like that. Just like uh, if they're all nine out of ten on the wild scale, you know. Um, I think maybe it's a confidence thing. Writers like Susan Orlean, who write about normal people in normal situations, and the writer at the Guardian who writes the long form, the great British long form, Sam Knight, writes about sandwiches and looking glasses, pubs, pubs. But he's a spectacular writer, so I guess I'm hiding behind these amazing stories. And I guess I was flattered and concerned when someone tweeted that when I wrote the McDonald's story that I didn't have to add any sexing up or I didn't need to gin it up. I just reported the facts. And it was true. But I feel like I don't have to pour the sauce on to these stories because they're already holy shit. Yeah, I mean, that that catfish story is is, one of the craziest things I've ever read in my life. I love that story so much. I couldn't believe it. People still write to me about that story. The short version of this story, for people listening, if they have not read it, is that uh, a woman got catfished by some old asshole, and the pictures the old asshole was sending to her were of a like, male model, and in order to try and get closure from this horrible experience, she tracked down the male model, and uh, was like, listen, I sort of fell in love with your pictures. And uh, then those two people fell in love in real life, got married. <laughs> They're not married yet, uh, but they married. are very serious, I believe. Those two people fell in love, got very serious. They live together. That's an amazing story. I still think about that story all the time. How do you find that one? Uh, that David Kluan sent me that. He sent me a link to a, a very ni- small nib in a British tabloid. So good. I love that story because it's got just the best ending. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's it- this real surprise in that you kind of think the story's going to go down the line where she overlooks the old guy's age and baldness and they fall in love and live happily ever after but but wait (laughs) and that story was another one that a lot of people read and I was getting really nice messages about that one I think someone wrote to me and said that uh, I'd ruined her staff picture day Uh, (laughs) there was a moment in the story where Emma kisses Adam for the first time in a London airport and the writer who wrote to me said she was crying and had to have her picture taken that day. <laughs> yeah, that story just made me so happy. I like stories that make people happy. I have this uh, theory that's come out on, I feel like, on this show where you talk to someone for long enough, you go back and read all of their work back to back to back to back, which, you know, I did with you before this. And you start to see these themes and you realize, like, people are writing about themselves on some level, they're trying to answer some kind of question. And for you, that question is about this relative reverse, you think? Possibly. Is there anything about yourself that these stories have taught you? Like, is it part of like wanting to just be like, yeah, I have a day job. <laughs> like, I just want to get that out there. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Well, that's my secret. I'm not ashamed of it. Going on university campuses and talking with, with other journalists you get asked that question and I've been on one recently at the University of California where the other two journalists have both come clean that they do this other work you know and there's there's really no shame in it I don't want to deceive others as well because people trying to get their start in long form 
think I'm sitting by the pool drinking pina coladas, turning out the odd banger. <laughs> you know, I try and write three stories. A, <laughs> I really hope we haven't made banger a thing. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's on me if we did, don't worry. <laughs> you know, I only write three, maybe three or four stories a year. And I wouldn't be able to survive financially on the magazine payments for those stories. It would be impossible even in England, especially in England. And to do so in LA, one of the most expensive cities in the world, has been really tough. You know, there's been some really tough times. People have talked about, like, my trajectory, you know, this week. But I spent a lot of time writing without a byline, being an, an uncredited foreign correspondent, working my way up, getting paid $100 for a story then getting paid $500 for a story. I was still being paid $500 for a story last year. What did the Daily Beast pay you? I don't know whether they'd want me to say. Probably not. It was a good deal. It was a good deal? For them. Oh, for them. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I, I, was, I was about to be pretty surprised. It sounds like it's been, um, it's been like a strange week for you. Yeah, I nearly didn't come on because I, I was worried that I'd, come across the wrong way you know I feel like in the vulture piece I came across as some kind of grifter you know really yeah I don't know maybe that's just me being paranoid but um it was just it's just been a weird week I've had a, I've had to come to terms with a lot of stuff this week yeah it seems like a real week of like highs yeah. and lows yeah it's it's been it's been wild I mean it's it's been a blur and how are you feeling now pretty good I'm glad Great, in fact. That's excellent. <laughs> I'm in New York. It's amazing. I guess I wondered a little bit if you felt like... Um, I know that you think the criticism was undeserved. But I wonder if you felt like it came out of some kind of jealousy. People, every, My friends said that's obvious. It's the green-eyed monster. They're all jealous. But I think that's lazy. And it would be lazy of me just to say that. And I had to look deeper than that I wanted to make sure I needed to check my morals and check my ethics yeah I'll take a story tip off of anyone if you've got any story ideas Max <laughs> great stories that have never been told I want to hear them if anyone's listening that has a great story that's never been told I want to hear from them I'll do the same again well, I'm glad you're feeling good man thanks for doing it thank you Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor is Janelle Piper, and our intern is Tyler McCloskey. Thanks to them. Thanks to our sponsors, MailChimp and ReadThisSummer.com, Pit Writers, and Google Play. Go get an audiobook at Google Play. You'll get 10 bucks off your first one by visiting g.co slash play slash longform. Thanks to them, and thanks most of all to Jeff Mache. If you have uh, not read that mcdonald's article how have you not read that mcdonald's article but if you haven't go read it and uh be on the lookout for what comes next from jeff maybe i'll have him back on and actually get him to tell me what his day job is we'll see you next week why do you run why does anyone i always thought that runners loved running 
And that's not the case. Most runners hate running. <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com. <laughs> 